WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to City Talk. If you're a fan of the Boston Red Sox and a fan of sports and sports history, we've got a dynamite guest this evening. If you remember the sixth game of the 75 World Series, as I do, you'll remember a home run that was hit by a fellow named Bernie Carbo to tie the game up and go into extra innings. And of course, we all know what happened in the 12th inning. And Bernie Carbo is with us as a friend of mine used to say, live and in living color. And Bernie, I, I can't tell you what a thrill it is to talk to someone as connected with history as you. Well, I appreciate um, it, Ken. I appreciate it. Let's, let's go back to that game. Uh, I know you give a lot of credit to Carlton Fisk, but if you hadn't hit that home run, <laughs> Fisk wouldn't have hit his. Well, and, that's true. But, you know, the, the thing about it, if Sparky Anderson would have managed like he always manages, which um, coming up in that situation, me being a, a left-hander hitter and Raleigh Eastwick being a right-hander, he would have went to Will McEnany, who's a left-hander in the bullpen. And I told Juan Benicus, I said, you, you get a bat because he's going to go to left-hander and you'll ha you have to come in and pinch hit for me. So when I went on the on-deck circle, I was still looking for Sparky to come out of the dugout and umpire says, you're hitting. I was like very surprised when I got to home plate. I said to Johnny, I said to Johnny, I said, John, you're not, they're not going to Will McEnany. He said, no, we're going right after you. I said, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. I was so behind uh, the first couple pitches. I was scared to death. And then um, he threw me a cut pass ball. And I had two strikes on me and I took it right out of Bench's glove and the umpire is saying, you know, ball and Bench is arguing it was a strike and I'm almost struck out probably. Um, Rose said it looked like a little leaguer trying to hit and Bench said it was the worst swing I ever saw in baseball. Rico Pezzicelli down the first said it looked like a pitcher hurt his arm trying to learn to hit. And of course, Freddie Lynn at second said there's just no chance. And Zimmer walked all the way down the right field line. I stepped out of the box and I went, Wow, that's terrible. And next thing I know, he threw me an outside fastball and I hit it and I saw Geronimo turn his back and uh, I'm rounding second base and I'm yelling at Pete Rose, don't you wish you were this strong, Pete? Don't you wish you were this strong? And he's yelling at me that, isn't this the greatest game you ever played in? And this is a World Series, Bernie. This is fun. This is a lot of fun. Well, I got to tell you, I was on my way to work that night. I was working at WBZ Radio at the time, and I had a radio with me. And Kurt Gowdy called that home run. And I think I scared my cab driver. I almost went off the road because I got so excited when you hit that and tied it up. And uh, it is ironic that they're telling you that's the worst swing they ever saw before you performed your magic. And, and we'll go back to all that later on. But first of all, tell me about um, uh, Bill LaJoy and Tiny Thompson. Wow. that's wow. You come up with Bill LaJoy and Tiny Thompson. Oh, my goodness. That's wonderful. Bill LaJoy was a bird dog for the Cincinnati Reds. What I mean, he was a scout, which ended up becoming a general manager for the Detroit Tigers and climbed up the ladder and and uh, Tiny Thompson was, I was playing with Modern Hardcore, George Brunel, and 
And it's a college league, and I was only 15 years old, and I sat the bench five games, and I asked for my release, and Tiny Thompson took me in to play shortstop. We had John Mayberry, Tom Ragland on that team that went to the big leagues. And I got the chance to play shortstop, and Tiny Thomas gave me a, an opportunity. Uh, Willie Horton played then earlier when he was a little older than I was, but I got an opportunity to play, and I really, you know, Scouts would come up to me and ask me what college I was going to. <laughs> I said, I'm only in the 10th grade. And that's why Martin Hardcomb didn't play me because they had all the college guys. And I thought I was too young. But when I went to Tony Thompson, he said, you're playing shortstop. You're going to be in there the whole time. And I think that's when I made a name for myself where, you know, I was number 16th pick, uh, number one draft choice the first year of the draft, which uh, I didn't like the draft. I'm against the draft and I always have been against the draft. And I got drafted and I had to go to Cincinnati Reds as the number one draft choice. It didn't make Johnny Bench very happy, but uh, he was a great catcher and a Hall of Famer, of course. But uh, Bill LaJoy was a good man. He only lived down the street. So he was watching me play ball when I was 11 years old. And Bob Hausman came to, the, uh, came to Detroit, signed me, and I went to uh, Tampa to play it um, in the Florida State League, and I struggled. But it was a lot of fun. Um, Bill LaJoy was a good man. I really liked Bill LaJoy. And uh, it was really a fun time for me. And, and I look back and playing in Detroit and playing in that league. And it was a lot of great baseball players. And a lot of players came out of that league from Detroit. When you got to Cincinnati, it was kind of disheartening because you did not like their current manager, and that was Dave Bristol. <laughs> You're hitting on some, you know, I was talking about that with my chiropractor today. You know, back in back in the 60s, you know, uh, it was kind of funny when I went to spring training. Uh, he found out he found out I didn't wear a cup, you know, so he took me out to third base, hit me about 150 ground balls, hoping he would teach me to wear a cup. But I was had good hands at that particular time, that especially that morning. And he threw me a bag of chewing tobacco at that time and he said you need to chew tobacco before you get to the big leagues and I, I went oh boy I, mean, I gotta chew tobacco now but I think that um, he had he, he, he had veterans he had a great team there was no room for a kid to play on that team you know you have Frank Robinson Beta Pinson and Pete Rose and a bunch of baseball players Daryl Johnson uh, Aaron Johnson and a few other players, Alex Johnson, and had a great team. Uh, Leo Cardenas at Tommy Helms, and it, they had a team. There was no reason, you know, uh, for the three years I went to spring training with Cincinnati at that time. Uh, the only thing I was discouraged with is that I've never got an opportunity to swing the bat in spring training, never got into a game. Uh, one time we were in spring training, and me and Helmer Cray were walking the streets of Miami and we got sent down uh, to um, the minor leagues with after the third year. And I spoke to Dave, I said, you've never seen me play. You know, I've never batted once. I've never been in a game and um, never got an opportunity. So when I, 1968, I went with Sparky Anderson. Uh, he said, he's going to make me into a ball player. And he did. Uh, we won the championship that year. And when Sparky became the manager, um, I had uh, a great year at AAA hitting 359, and Sparky gave me an opportunity. Uh, me and Helen McRae and Daryl Cheney and Davey Concepcion and Wayne Simpson were all rookies coming up to the big leagues. That that was different. You know, 
Sparky gave all us young kids an opportunity to come to the big leagues. And I think that we helped in 1970 to make the big red machine, make the Cincinnati Reds get into a World Series. But when we got into the World Series against Baltimore, our pitching staff was really hurting and had a lot of sore arms and nobody, nobody could lift their arms up. It was just a terrible time to have pitching. You have to win with pitching. We didn't have the pitching going into that World Series. And uh, it was a great play, too. Uh, if you remember, in 1970, you go way back at game one, um, man on first and third. We're losing five to three in the first game. And I'm on third. And Alex Grammer said, watch the line drive. Don't get doubled off. Tag up on the fly ball. Go on the ground ball. And uh, Ty Klein topped the ball. And... Um, Elrod Hendricks picked the ball up with his hand and I'm sliding in the home and Ken Burkhart's in the way. He can't see the play. I, I can't see home plate. Now he's in the way. I have to slide around him. Burkhart is in my way. And Ellie Rodriguez, uh, Ken, what was the, the catcher's name I just mentioned? Uh, Hendricks? Elrod yeah. Hendricks? Yeah, George Hendricks sags into the glove and has the ball in the other hand. I miss home plate, and umpire calls me out. I step on home plate arguing. Sparky comes out and says, if you get kicked out of the game, it's going to cost you $5,000. And I look at him and say, I'm only making $10,000. <laughs> so, you know, we lost that first game in the World Series, and that was tough, but it was a situation that at that time that was written in the paper that uh, I lost the first game in the World Series because I didn't run the bases correctly. But, you know, if we had instant replay, I wonder if George Hendricks doesn't tag me with the ball and I miss home plate. But as I was arguing, I step on home plate, so I'd be safe today. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because 70 for you guys, at least for you, was a Cinderella year your first year in the big leagues. And it was kind of disheartening to find out that in 71, you already had contract problems and um, kind of lost your temper. Can you tell that story about Bob Housen? Well, the thing is, I went to, uh, I went to, I went, to, I held out um, all the spring training. At the time I was making 10,000, the minimum went to 12. Uh, they were offering me a $5,000 raise at 17000 And Billy Congliglio, um signed a contract with the Red Sox his second year for $32,000. Uh, as the number one job choice, I signed for thirty when I was 17. So I was negotiating with Bob Hausman, and uh, he called me and asked me to come to the um, office at that time. And I said, you know, when I was 17 years old, you signed me for 30,000. And I said, and I just went to Marvin Miller and I'm asking Marvin Miller that I want to go to court and fight this, but you know, he's going to go with um, Kurt Flood. And he says, I'm too young to go to court to, uh, to negotiate my contract. I've just, you're not offering me very much money. I can go to Puerto Rico and make more money in three months and get my house paid for and a car and everything else. And, I could go work at a hardware store and go play winter ball and make more money. And he says, no, you're going to go home and carry a lunch bucket like your dad. And I said, well, I said, I would one, I want to play baseball. I, I want to make some money. I, I thought that I would, you know, make more money than, you know, I just feel I love baseball. I want to play. And he says, no, you're going home and carry a lunch bucket like your dad. And I said, you know, I've always dreamed all my life about playing baseball. I mean, you gave me 30000 when I was 17. Now I played in the minor leagues, minor league player of the year, rookie of the year, playing the World Series, 
fifth top hitter and everything like this. He had 310. He says, I guess you just don't understand that you're going to go home and carry home lunch, you know, go home and carry a lunch bucket like your dad. And I pulled him across the desk and I beat him up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I beat no. him up. And, uh, you know, a guy interviewed me years later and he says, you're not very, uh, interviewed uh, the big red machine in the seventies and talked to Bob Hausman. You're not very liked by Buster Bob Hausman. And I said, well, you know, nobody, I never told anybody that uh, I pulled him across the desk and beat him up. And when we played in the 75 World Series, he gave, gave me an opportunity to go to Sparky Anderson and say, Sparky, I'm really sorry because I put you in a situation that when me and Hausman had our argument and things went bad with us and he told me that I would never play in the big leagues again. And I put you in that situation and I said, I'm really sorry. Um, that, that that happened. And he said, don't worry about it, Bernardo. Don't worry about it, Bernardo. You know, you're like a son to me and I love you very much. I said, well, thanks, Sparky. You know, I made a lot of mistakes in my life, you know, and uh, that was one of the bigger ones to, to make at the age of 22, 23 years old. And the next year I didn't go to spring training either. So I missed spring training at 22 and 23 years old. I had no spring training. And I got traded to the Cardinals and then to Boston. And my whole career seemed to uh, go backwards and made a lot of bad decisions and ended up not loving the game of baseball. But, you know, the question that's asked to me more often than not about your career, what would you do differently? And my life has changed because of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, took, I was um, an alcoholic and a drug addict uh, for 28 years. At the age of 43, I was going to a rehab but by baseball assistance team, um, Sam McDowell. What happened was uh, my mother committed suicide, my dad died, and my career uh, was just heartening. It was terrible. Just decisions I made. With the one with Hausman was a fine example. You just don't do things like that. And I've had a lot of fights and a lot of arguments and a lot of things that happened in my career, but it came to a place where I drove the car in the garage. I was going to smoke my last joint, drink my last beer. And, and I was just going to go to sleep. My mom drank Rotor-Rotor. I wouldn't go and go that way. But uh, Bill Lee called, <laughs> of all people. And he, he, he wasn't on the phone very long. And then he called uh, Ferguson Jenkins. And I wasn't going to tell Fergie anything about what I was going to do because he had enough hardship in his life. And Sam McDowell called me. And the next morning, I went to rehab. And when I went to rehab, of course, I didn't want to be there. I had an anxiety attack. I ended up at Tampa University Hospital where, man, I called, I uh, got a call as I was in the hospital room. He got a call from rehab and I hung up and he said, are you an alcoholic and a drug addict? And I was like, wow. He said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I said, I don't really know what you're talking about. My mom and dad didn't go to church. I didn't never went to church, never had a Bible, never went to church. We didn't believe in God. And then, you know, you know, I, I would think that the thing about it was that I stood, I was with that man, the old man next to me for about three days. And he told me that I was a sinner and I can repent and uh, I can come to know the Lord and, and uh, believe in Jesus Christ, that he died, took on the sin of the world, took on my sin and that I can be reborn, which uh, I didn't believe a lot of things, but, you know, I didn't want to die at that time. Um, and I prayed to take Christ into my life and my life changed. I went into rehab and came out of rehab and started a diamond club ministry with Carl Schillings. 
And I was talking to a young group of young men yesterday from the age of about uh, 10 to 17. And uh, I, I told a story of that about an old man that I talked to, uh, 80 years old, and told him, I said, I'm praying for you to get in the God's Hall of Fame. And uh, he said, uh, I don't know how to get there. I said, either die. And I gave him the gospel and the good news. It's by Jesus Christ. And I've been clean for 27 years. I love baseball now. God has given me back my understanding of the players that I played with, the great opportunity and played in the big leagues, playing two World Series, playing Boston, the greatest place ever to play. I played with Carl Yastrzemski. I knew Ted Williams, Sam Usual. Played against Willie Mays, stole his game bat, and he was mad at me for 40 years. And Still love him. He's the greatest ball player I ever played. I played with, I played with Hank Aaron. I played with Willie Stargell, Dave Parker, Dale Barra, and a whole bunch of Pittsburgh players and Cardinal players. Ted Simmons, who just got in the Hall of Fame, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock. So the things I look back at now that I came to know Jesus Christ in my life, um, even that home run, you know, I never, when I was hit that home run in 75, it was so long ago, 40-some years ago, I never heard the crowd, and um, I missed in a bat, too, believe it or not. I struck out. I didn't know I got up to to the plate uh, the second time. I played. I batted after I hit that home run. I didn't even realize that. I didn't know it until I watched the highlights, and I said, holy cow. And my wife says, you should have hit another home run instead of striking out. <laughs> but but, but you when I heard the home. crowd, when I heard the crowd, I was like, I don't believe it, man. That crowd went loud. They said the hospital down, the, down in Boston, the women's hospital, they, were, they, were, they knew something happened. Uh, my friend was at, uh, his wife was having a baby, and he said, when I heard that crowd, I had to tell the wife, I could go find out what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's uh, a lot of things happened in my career. If you read my book, Saving Bernie Carbo, uh, Peter Hansen wrote that book. We were great friends. He's a has a doctor's degree in clinical psychology. He teaches at Low Mass, and uh, I understand that you read my book. I did. Yeah, and this is where you're getting a lot of that information. You asked me a question when we were talking. You said, "How? What? How could you be so honest in your book? How could you be so honest about the things you talked about in your life?" Yeah. Well. Um... You know, a lot of a lot of people, even myself, have the tendency to put ball players on a pedestal. They are something special. Uh, I did it with guys like Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford, and then found out that uh, you know Mickey spent a lot of his time in in bars and not necessarily sitting there watching television. And uh, I kind of felt bad about that. Were you afraid when you put all this down? that you would lose fans because of all the stuff that you admitted? You know, what I wanted them to know was that we're born with the sin nature of the first Adam. You know, I never read the Bible and never knew anything. And now in the 27 years I've been clean and reading the word and being in the word, going to church and praising God and worshiping God and knowing the Holy Spirit and God is with me. I wanted people to know that no matter whatever you've gone through in your life, I mean, I went through a lot and I made a lot of bad decisions, not knowing the Lord and not knowing Christ and not knowing the character of God to be able to walk the walk. 
you know, Jesus came to give us the way, the truth, and the life. And I wanted people to know no matter what had happened in your life, I wonder sometimes, you know, there are things that went through my life that I can reach so many people. You know, I was molested. I went through drugs and alcohol. I've been abused, verbally abused, and, and, and have been treated in a way and, and done things in my life that I'm, I should be very ashamed of. But uh, I wanted them to know, no matter whatever you've gone through in your life, their life, there is there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ when you're reborn, and and God is with me, and the Spirit of God is with me, and I'm I'm a new man in Christ, and I wanted people to know that my life has changed, but it's a very difficult path. Being a Christian is not an easy thing. It's a thing that you have to understand that every day of your life. I'm not able to take my eyes off of Jesus Christ. I have to have him with me, which God is with me wherever I go. And if I'm in the fire, everything I've gone through, yes, there's scars, there's pain, there's times I cry and everything else. But hitting that home run in the World Series, thinking I dreamed about that my whole life, my whole life, I was putting marbles. My daddy buy me some marbles and I'd hit them over the fence with a wooden bat and the wooden bat had little holes in it. And, and I asked my dad for some more marbles. He gets mad at me because I don't know how to shoot marbles and he's not going to buy me any more marbles because he's thinking I'm giving them to the whole, my, all the kids in the neighborhood. And I, you know, and I hit that home run and I was home crying in my bed, crying in my bed like a little boy, like a little boy crying. And I was so empty thinking that being a professional ball player, you know, I was making pretty good money then and being famous and being playing with the Boston Red Sox and Mr. Yawkey at Fenway Park, the greatest baseball park to play in and the greatest fans and hitting one of the greatest home runs. I was still hurting and empty and had pain. And boy, I mean, it just went on and on in my whole life. And at the age of 43, a guy in the hospital gives me the gospel and the good news. And I take Christ in my life and I ask them, what is your name? And he says, your only name you need to know is Jesus Christ. And he hand, hands me my first Bible. And then I go to rehab and this guy comes up and says, I'm a Christian. I'm here to disciple you in the name of Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about, man. And he's reading the Bible for three months. We're in the Bible. And then I get out of the, get out of the rehab and I'm going home. I have two, a flat tire. I can't have a spare. I got to walk back to rehab. I've got all day. I got to borrow money because I don't have any get the tires. I get back home and the guy comes over and calls shillings and we start the diamond club ministry. I walk into my first church. I get baptized and it's difficult. And after 14 months, I relapse because I didn't change people and play things. I relapsed really hard for three weeks and God still loved me. You know, I thought God didn't love me. And then I, you know, my psychiatrist was a Christian. He says, you need to pray to find a good woman. <laughs> I prayed to find a good woman. I told the pastor, I got to go to the anchor house where I go play pool with the boys and basketball and play some softball and told the pastor there, I relapsed and going to have lunch and the phone rings. And here comes Tammy Yon. And I tell her, Tammy Yon, you're going to have lunch with me. And God told me you need to be with me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, God ain't told me anything yet. <laughs> and we were married four months later and I adopted her son, but his name is Christopher Bernardo Carbo Jr. He's the third and uh, he's a great kid. He's in, uh, he's a doctor in the army. Uh, he's got uh, 
doctor's degree in psychology, works with a Green Beret. He's here in Fort Bragg. He's got 12 years in, and uh, we're here in North Carolina to be with him and his two kids. My wife's retired from school counseling, and I'm teaching baseball and teaching the greatest game ever played and telling the greatest story ever, and that's Jesus Christ. What about your daughters? How are your daughters doing, or what are they up to? My daughters are struggling, you know. Um, they didn't have much of a dad. I wasn't there for them. And uh, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. But my oldest daughter, um, I was working in Mobile, Alabama with a young boy. Started working with him when he was 10 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. And he died of an overdose uh, with fentanyl. And I did his funeral. And right before I went, was leaving for the funeral, my my oldest daughter, Tracy, called me and she said, Dad, this is Tracy. And I went, how are you doing, Tracy? I love you very much. I miss you. She said, Dad, I just prayed to take Jesus Christ into my life. I've been baptized. Austin, 10 years old, baptized. My husband's been baptized. I'm loving God and loving Jesus. And uh, I did the funeral. So I'm really happy with, with being with her. I'm going to be with her in March. Tamara is struggling. Mandy's struggling. My grandchildren are struggling. And I have um, 11 grandchildren. I have four great-grandchildren. And, um, you know, not everyone comes to know the Lord. And they, sometimes they have to reach bottom as I reach bottom before they wake up and know that uh, there's a different way to live. And um, I've told them all that I'm responsible for most of the choices they've made. And I'm very sorry and that I love them and I pray for them continuously to make better choices in their lives. And they're starting to listen and I think they're making better choices. My grandkids are being better too. And it's just a process. And I believe that um, we have to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that ever you should believe you shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's what I'm about. Wherever I go, I'm an evangelist. Wherever I go, it's all about Jesus. I wear a shirt that says, Jesus Reigns Diamond Club Ministry, which I started in 1993 with Carl Schillings. I went to New England for 20, 25 years before this COVID, and we did 10 and 12,000 miles all through Maine and Canada, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Boston, Virginia, New York. I've, I've gone every place. I've been to Guam. I've been to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain, teaching baseball and telling kids about Jesus and going in churches, halfway houses, prisons, detention homes. I will go any place every time offered an opportunity. All I need is get, get there, get home, have a place to put my head down, to be able to talk to people and give them hope and understanding that it's only in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd like to go back, if it's okay, and discuss sure. more of your baseball career. You mentioned Tom Yawkey. Oh. <laughs> and there are two <laughs> very poignant stories in your book about Yawkey. Can yeah. you tell us those stories? Well, I love Mr. Yawkey. I love Mr. Yawkey, man. I, I, I finally, in all the years I've ever played baseball, I put the uniform on and it meant something in my life. It meant I wanted to win for Mr. Yawkey. I love playing for him. I love putting that Boston uniform on. And I was the first ball player to take him to arbitration for a $10,000 race. And, 
and I ended up losing. And uh, Mr. Yawkey, I, 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 I tell you how I met him. <laughs> he was in, in he was in the clubhouse talking to, to the Bat Boys and the clubhouse boys and all that. And I, I walked over and I says, "Here, here's twenty bucks, twenty dollars. I need a cheeseburger and fries." And Tommy, the clubhouse boy, came back about 20 minutes later and he said, do you know who you gave that money to? I said, no, I don't. He says, Mr. Yawkey, he owns the team. (laughs) (laughs) I walked over to him. I said, oh, he said, before I could even open my mouth, he said, Bernardo. And there's only one other person that ever called me Bernardo, Sparky Anderson. He loved me. Sparky loved me. I was, he was like my daddy. And I was like, He's like my grandpa talking to me, calling me Bernardo. And he said, Bernardo, just win the game, Bernardo, just win the game. And no, and at that time, I told him, I says, you know, my wife's pregnant. I want to buy a house. Can you advance me $10,000 and take it out of my check? You know, three days later, the clubhouse man said, there's a letter, there's an envelope in your, in your locker. And when I opened up, it was $10,000. I was able to buy a home in Framingham. And the thing about it was Mr. Yawkey never took a penny out of my pockets. Never, never took a penny. And it broke my heart when they took his sign down um, from the street that was called Mr. Yawkey. Fenway Park is like Wrigley Field. There's only two places to play baseball. One is Wrigley Field and the other one's Fenway. And uh, I loved playing there. And I always said, when, when I left there the first time I went to Milwaukee, I got traded. I, I didn't report for 22 days. I wasn't going to Milwaukee for 22 days. And um, now the next time I got I went to Cleveland and uh, that's where I should have stayed. But when I left Boston the second time, my career was over with and uh, my heart was broken. And, uh, you know, it was, it was when we had our 40 year reunion, I saw Rick Burleson staring at me and he said to me, he said, you know, when you left in 77, if we didn't get rid of you, there wouldn't have been a, a buggy dinner, a home run because nobody came off the bench for 120 some games. that did not pinch hit an RBI, pinch hit a home run, come off the bench to drive a run in and understand that that one time, that one at bat, one run, that I might've won a game, there would not have been a playoff. So that was really nice for Burleson to say that. Another thing he said, he said he couldn't believe that I'm still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Was, was Daryl Johnson the right manager for that 75 team? Well, the one thing about Daryl Johnson, he left us alone. You know, uh, Carl Yastrzemski was our leader. You know, Carl Yosemski was the greatest superstar baseball player that I ever played with. I loved Carl Yosemski. He had a great personality. He's quiet. He was a leader and he wanted to win. He played every time, played every game. We had uh, Freddie Lynn. You know, I put in my book um, that Jimmy Rice broke his wrist and I put in the book. I says, you know, we lost Jimmy Rice in that World Series and um he read the book and I saw him next time I saw him. He says, you got the, you got it all wrong. And I went, what do you mean? What, I, what did I get all wrong? He says, not like losing Tony Perez. It was like losing Johnny bench, <laughs> <laughs> but the greatest game, you know, the thing about it is that I was talking to the gentleman that was putting this together and he's a young man. He's in his thirties. You know, I talked to, the, the history of baseball has been lost. You know, I talked to kids about Stan Musial and who's my hitting instructor and Ted Williams and Willie Mays and, 
you know, Hank Aaron and these kids, they, they don't remember these players, you know, and I think back in, in me growing up as a kid, you know, I, my Al Kaline playing in Detroit, Al Kaline, of course, Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. You mentioned, mentioned Mickey Mantle, you know, Mickey Mantle. I was loving New York Yankees that time playing in Detroit. But, you know, it's um, the history of the game. I think there's going to we're in a position now that if we don't settle before spring training, uh, I think baseball is riding the coattail of football now. And uh, things are changing uh, with this COVID. We didn't have any fans there for a while. We lost, we lost a lot of minor league teams. We lost over 44 rookie league baseball cities and stadiums that have been around for over a hundred years. We lost 1200 baseball players. We've lost management. The cities have lost money and the salaries are getting outrageously to where we, you know, the owners are still making money, but it's costing too much to go to a ball game, too much to park, too much for the food and the souvenirs and whatever. I tell you, I run a fantasy camp March 11th, 12th, and 13th at Hank Aaron Stadium, which Hank Aaron Stadium is going to be tore down. I'm meeting with the owner that bought the property, and I'm going to try to convince him that Hank Aaron, the greatest baseball player that I ever played with in my life, from Mobile, the stadium needs to stand. It needs to be there. It needs the history of Mobile to know that Willie McCovey, Ozzie Smith, and Aaron, just a few to mention that has come from Mobile, that we, you know, John Hilliard and Ari are running that for the last few years, have been there over 20 years. That stadium needs to stay. And when you talk to kids today, and I'm talking about players, they don't know who they are. People are listening to this right now, and they, you know, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, they don't know who Bernie Carbo is. They don't know me hitting a home run. I talk to kids, they have no idea who I am until they go online, they pull me out in the computer and whatever, and they come back the next day. Another thing happened. Some kid came up to me and said, oh, wow, I was, I was watching TV. I was watching, and it came on in 1999, 1999, the All-Star game at Fenway Park. You were catching, and Hank Aaron threw the ball to you to start the home run derby. <laughs> you know what? I was at that game. That was, that was a thrill of my life to have Hank Aaron sign that ball. And Hank Aaron's home is in Mobile at the property of Hank Aaron Stadium. It's a museum that my ball that he, he signed in 1990 All-Star Game is in that museum. And uh, it, I just, you know, it breaks, it breaks my heart what's happening to baseball. You know, it really it's, is. it's funny you mentioned the 1999 All-Star Game. Because I read in another book that originally it was not supposed to be at Fenway Park. It was supposed to be at Miller Park in Milwaukee. But because of construction problems, they moved it to Fenway. Wow, I didn't know that. But I did get an opportunity. And that was the most fun I've ever had. It was, uh, you know, one of the things that um, Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron, uh, playing with Hank Aaron, it was his last year of his career and sitting there next to him, just trying to figure out all the things about pick his mind about hitting and, and, and just watching him in his last year of his life of playing football. I mean, playing baseball, I'm sorry, his baseball career. He was a great man. He was such a sweetheart. I mean, he just, 
he he helped me at the time where I didn't want to be in Milwaukee. And sitting next to him made me feel at home in Milwaukee. And it gave me a, 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 the courage to, to stand up and be the man that he, I should have been, you know, to speak out on how I was being treated and stuff. And um, I ended up getting uh, a telephone call from Don Zimmer when Daryl Johnson, I was fired and Zimmer called me and he said, uh, do you want to come back to Boston? And I said, I sure would. He said, okay, you know, do what you got to do in Milwaukee, play hard, and you're coming, you're, I'm going to trade for you, and you're going to come back. And we got uh, George Scott and myself that went to uh, Boston, and hey, they got Cecil Cooper, which ended up being a, a, a just a great baseball player for the Milwaukee Brewers, and they ended up winning the World Series. But I came to Boston back with Don Zimmer in um, 77, I had a great year, 228 at bats. I hit 15 home runs, three pinch hit home runs. And that's when Ted Williams said to me, he said, what do you look for when you go up to the plate? And I said, I look fastball and react to curveball. And he says, that's why you hit 200 and I hit 400. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got to see the ball, get a good pitch and hit it hard. But if they're getting you out with a breaking ball and you're watching the the game and you're sitting on the bench watching 150 pitches being thrown, you know, when he's throwing a curve, the slider or change up, is he getting it over? When's he throw the fastball? Was he throw with minute scoring position? What's his out pitch? And so in that 70 cent opening day, I'm facing Ferguson Jenkins. And what does he get me out with is the curveball. I have never in my life hit a curveball for a home run. And here I'm 26 years old facing Ferguson Jenkins opening day. And what's he throw me? I'm looking curveball, looking for it up, and I hit a home run. I hit another curveball and hit a double. And we go out to eat, and Ferguson Jenkins is so angry. <laughs> he won't talk to me. And he looks at me finally. You've never hit a curveball in your life, and you've never hit one off of me. And I says, you know what? William says you look for it, make it be a good pitch, and hit it hard. Now, I watched you pitch to me for seven years, and I'm never – Hit you very hard, never got a hit off the breaking ball, and I knew you were going to throw it to me, and I hit it deep. <laughs> this, this may be a difficult question, but compare personality-wise Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. You know, Willie Mays was uh, a great baseball player. Man, I'm telling you. I, you know, Willie, and when I got called up in 1969, and uh, I'm walking on the field in San Francisco and there's no steps in the dugout and there's no one in the dugout. So I go in the dugout and I'm looking for Willie's bat and I take it, I take it, take it out the bat rack. <laughs> and the first time up, I break it. And uh, after the game, I hear somebody yelling, where's Carbo? Where's Carbo? And I'm like, Willie, Mr. Willie Mays, I'm right here. <laughs> he says, where's my game bat? <laughs> was game bat. When I play in the minor leagues, we go to Sears Roebuck and buy the Ted Williams bat, and that'd be the bat we swing with for the rest of the summer. <laughs> I said, game bat is right here. Will you sign it for me? And he looked at me, and, and 40 years later, they were moving Hank Aaron's house in. You got Reggie Jackson, Henderson, and Willie McCovey, Willie Mays, and I walk in, and he looks at me and says, oh, you're that left-handed hitter that took my game bat. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding, Willie, man. You were my favorite ball player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
both of them, one was, uh, you know, one was showboaty, you know, in the sense that he was just a flash and he did so many things that were so easy. Willie Mays, uh, he's so great and such a great hitter and runner and just fabulous. And Aaron did things quietly, really quietly. And um, you wouldn't even know that he's in the ballpark, but then playing in the game, but he did it real quietly and uh, did it very, he taught us and taught Robin Young and, the other ball players, he, he taught a grip of the bat that was a lot different than what they were teaching. And that's little knuckles on big knuckles instead of little knuckles, knock knuckles, you know what I mean? And Aaron told me, he said, Bernie, if you learn it's okay for you to make an out, you'll be a great hitter. And I said, Aaron, what do you mean by that? He says, Bernie, you bat 10,000 times, you make 7,000 outs. You'd be fortunate if you ever get 3,000 hits, you're in the Hall of Fame. He says, you're going to strike out 2,000 times, 500 bats for four years, you're not going to hit the ball. You're going to walk 1,000 times, that's two more years, you're not going to hit the ball. Six years, 500 bats, you're not going to hit the ball. You, you have to understand that every bat, every pitch is important, Bernie. You don't give up. You don't pouch. You don't throw tantrums. You got to have the same attitude. You got to have a, a love of playing baseball. You got to love it. You gotta love hitting. You gotta love playing. You gotta love the game. You really have to start loving it. And that's when I realized that I lost my love for the game when I was with Aaron. And he's telling me, "You gotta love it, Bernie. You gotta love it." And that's what I spread out to whatever kids are doing, whatever you're doing in your life, or anyone is listening to this. Whatever you choose to do, love what you're doing. Love what you're doing. Love, love what's happening in your life. Be content, have joy and peace and understanding and have love in your life. And I had to learn what it meant to love. And when I asked God, I said, God, I need to be, you teach me to love God. I want to know how to love. I want to know how to love Bernie. I want to know how to love my kids. I want to know how to love my wife. I want my son. I want to learn to love the lost. I want to love people. I want to love you and everyone else that I meet. I want to show that that love in my gleam of my eyes that I'm I'm more content and happier than I've ever been in my life. And I want to express that to people. I, I want them to feel what I feel in my heart. And uh, I'm at peace today and I love what's happening in my life. I'm 74 years old now. I'm going to be coaching a college team. I'm working three different places teaching hitting and I'm in right here in Southern Pines. I have my fantasy camp March 11th, 12th and 13th at Hank Aaron stadium. Um, I'm telling people about Jesus. I mean, I go to banquets and whatever. Um, they know when I walk in, I'm going to talk to players and people and ask them the question, what are you doing with Jesus Christ? Now you, you talk in your book about going to fantasy camps earlier in your career. And uh, it got to be not much fun because of what other ballplayers uh, tried to make you go back to the Bernie Carmo that you used to be. Well, that's why I started a new one. Uh, when, you know, everybody loved, them, loved me. You know, everybody loved me when I was drinking and doing drugs and partying and doing crazy stuff. You know, everybody loves you when you got the drugs. Everybody loves you when you're drinking. Everybody loves you when you're partying. And, and the fantasy camps were something that uh, I went into rehab and I was going to the camps. I was going to camps as a Christian. I was being mocked. I was being made fun of. Uh, they were putting beer and marijuana and drugs in front of me. And it's just like, hey, guys, I called my wife. I says, I'm coming home. 
Uh, 25 years ago, I started the Diamond Club Ministry Fantasy Camp, and we do it at Hank Aaron Stadium, and we've done it for 25 years, and I don't advertise. It's all word of mouth, and uh, John Hilliard has done a great job. Um, we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, when I go there, I do a men's group, uh, Hot Dogs at the Hank. That's where it's been going on for a long, long time. Um, we, we play Friday night. We, we put uniforms on everybody. We got Cincinnati, Yankees, uh, Boston, the Cleveland Indians, the Baltimore Orioles. We got shirts, we got hats and pants and play hardball, go out there. And a lot of guys come uh, for, the, that, for all the years they've been coming. They don't play anymore. Some of them just come to put the uniform on. We play Friday night, Saturday, we go to the ballpark. We play at 10, have lunch at 12, play at four or five. We have a banquet, we have an auction. Uh, we have a sermon on the mound on Sunday, and then they go home, and it's uh, $350, and if they come, they can't afford that, we charge them $150, and if they can't afford that, I let them come. It must, it must bother you like it does me. I mean, I love baseball history. I know who Bernie Carbo was. I know who Jude, Joe DiMaggio was. I knew who Dom DiMaggio was. But baseball has had more work stoppages than any other sport. I mean, they've all had them. And now you have work stoppages. You have the, the baseball season starting on March 31st. It never used to start that early. It's too cold to play ball. Yeah. You know, how much is how much? How much money is too much? When I played ball, um, the minimum salary was $12,000, $15,000. Average salary was around $25,000. 35,000. If you're a superstar, you're making 45 grand. We made it better for the kids. I went on strike three, four, five times. We made it better for these kids today. Um, minimum salary is 675. Average salary is four to five million. Guys are making 40, 50 million dollars. You know, how much is too much? The owners are getting TV contracts for billions in money, one to two, three billion dollars. They're making money. Everybody's making money. How much is too much? I think as a fan, how much do I have to pay to go to a ball game? How much do I have to pay for a hot dog and a Coke and a, and a scorecard and everything else and parking, whatever? It's gone too far. It's gone too far. You know, I even football, all the, all, the, all, the, all the salaries in football and basketball. You know, us regular people, you know, um, you know, we make around 50, 60, 75,000. If you're making 100,000, that's good. Minimum salary's going up a little bit, but we can't afford and we can't afford it anymore. And uh, if there's another strike, I think it's going to be the death of baseball. Matter of fact, I don't think the owners really care because they can make money and not have one person come to the ballpark with the TV you know, revenue and everything else. And I think the players uh, have an have a understanding that what's happening when they become a free agent today, after coming out of college and becoming a free agent, they're over 30 years old. Now, these other people who have never played the games are in their computers and they're figuring out when a player reaches over 30 years old, they're on the decline. If they're not a superstar, we're going to let them go home. Go home and carry a lunch bucket like your dad. <laughs> and then they're going to go back to the kid. So what's happening is these young ballplayers are still young. And when they become a free agent, they're not getting signed. So let's do away. We should have done away with a draft and a free agency. When I went, when I went to Marvin Miller, in 1970 and told him, I want to go against the U. I want to go against baseball. I want to be able to play wherever I want to play. 
My dad can go work wherever he wants to work. I didn't believe in the draft and I was drafting. I didn't want to sign with Cincinnati. I want to play for the Detroit Tigers. No, I'm not getting any money. So I can go home. I can go work in a, a hardware store and go play ball in Puerto Rico. So I want to go to court and fight for the reasons that was different than Kirk Flood. Kirk Flood got traded. He didn't want to get traded. Ten years later, after the fact, Marvin Miller said he made a mistake. Mm. And that he should have taken me, you know, well, fight, fight for what I believe. And I believe that even today, I don't believe in the football draft, basketball draft. I don't believe in any draft. I just believe these kids can play and get the money they need to get and play and be be able to play wherever they want to play and not have to get drafted. And if you wait six months, then you have to go through the draft again. So it's a difficult situation that they're in. But, you know. I just think that, um, you know, whatever the circumstances, whatever we're going through and whatever, it's, uh, I know that today I choose to be happy because I'm above the ground, I'm breathing, and I know my destiny, where I'm going to be, and um, my identity is in Jesus Christ, so, um, you know, I just choose to be happy today, and there's a lot of decisions that are being made in this world today that uh, I don't have any control and God is in control. He's a sovereign God. Nothing happens that God doesn't know what's going on. So well, I choose to be happy today. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but I will tell you this. I thought sure when there was no world series in 1994, that the fans would not come back, but they did. They always come back. If the product is there, they're going to go see it. Well, I'm going to tell you one thing. I was glad the Yankees and the Dodgers didn't win because they <laughs> spent almost $300 million putting a team together. And I was saying, oh, I don't want them to win. And you got the Atlanta Braves came in and won. And when you, you know, I like the, I like the underdogs. So I'm, I'm rooting for Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl. And uh, I'm hoping this kid, Joe, uh, picks up. And he's just a great kid. He, you know, he, he went to Ohio State, wasn't a first-string quarterback or whatever. And then he went to LSU and – Heisman and then he went to Cleveland. Nobody, everybody is a kid. They don't pick him to win one game. And he's won every game to get to the playoffs and get to the championship now to the Super Bowl. And so, you know, if he wins, I can understand that football will be back. But you know, with the Atlanta Braves winning, I think that helped baseball in a sense that uh we're trying to even the field, you know, but I think that baseball has been the greatest game ever played. And that's what I preach. Baseball is the greatest game ever played, and the greatest story ever told is Jesus Christ. Well, listen, I I appreciate your taking time out to 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 come on this program. I've been a fan of baseball. I've obviously been a fan of the Red Sox. I even and don't tell anybody when I was little rooted for the Yankees. <laughs> uh -huh. But I I appreciate your giving of your time. Uh, it's been a real thrill to to not only read your book but to be able to sit down and talk to somebody who was one of my heroes, as were a lot of the Red Sox players. And uh, I can't thank you enough for doing that. Well, you know, kid, Ken, uh, I tell you, Dwight Evans and um, Louis Tian and Pete Rose, and I can go on and on and on that belongs in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens, well, you know, Barry Bonds and all those players that might have did something wrong in their lives. But you know what? There's no Saints in baseball in a sense in the Hall of Fame. These guys were superstar, great ball players. And 
it's just um, the baseball game itself is uh, the greatest game played. And Ted Williams used to always say the hardest thing for a man to do in any sport was to hit a baseball. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, he did a pretty good. He did a pretty good job at it, though. Yeah, I love Ted Williams. Yeah, I had a chance to meet Ted Williams once when he was manager of the Rangers. Amen. Um, Amen. After they after they moved out of Washington, but and listen, he wanted thanks. to put Shoeless Joe Jackson in the Hall of Fame too before he died. Yeah, he did, and he didn't. He didn't make it. I don't know whether he'll ever get in there. But um, see, now there's people that don't know who Shoeless Joe Jackson was. I you know, know who he was. Amen. Amen. Can you about the other guy? You mentioned Joe DiMaggio. When yep. Joe DiMaggio came out of center field and came uh, on a golf cart to, to home plate, I walked up there. And I said, Joe DiMaggio, because I love Don DiMaggio. Not, not very yep. many people knew Don DiMaggio. And then Jimmy yep. Pearsall, uh, you know, Jimmy uh, Pearsall yes. sitting next to me. And he says, if you didn't hit that home run, nobody would know who you were. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I said, yeah, but I hit it right. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you doing this. Give my best to your wife. Uh, just one quick question. Do you ever see Susan anymore? You know, my uh, oldest daughter, um, Susan was going, that's my ex-wife, Susan, my, yep. uh, Tracy, um, Susan, her mother, you know, Susan with Tracy, that's our oldest daughter. She said, I want to come and visit. And Tracy said, mom, if you come to visit, you're going to go to church with me and you're going to stay with me, but I want you to go and come. Well, when she went to visit uh, my oldest daughter, she went to church and uh, found the Lord and got baptized. And uh, so Tracy's on fire leading and her mother to Christ and they're trying to lead her sisters, you know, Nandy and Tamara. So we need to pray for them, but Tracy's on fire. I mean, she is on fire for the Lord. If you talk to her, it's all about Jesus. And she led her mother to Christ at the age of 70. So, well, you know, I, there's a lot of hope out there for a lot of people. And it's just got people. And I tell Christian people what I talk to them about is what are you doing with Jesus? And who are you telling about Christ? And, you know, God is still in the works of making miracles. And I believe, and that's all you have to do is believe and call on the name of the Lord. And Things can change in your life. And uh, my daughter's making a big difference. And Susan has been baptized and coming to the Lord. And she went home and told Tamara and Mandy that if they wanted to, they needed to go to church with her. So hopefully that uh, Tamara and Mandy will get a little closer to the Lord too. So we can always pray and continue to pray for our world. We just continue to pray for our world and pray for people who are Christians to go out in the world and tell people about Christ and give the gospel and the good news. And the world needs Jesus. Well, listen, we need Bernie Carbo. I can't thank you enough for doing this. I want you to take care of yourself, stay warm, and uh, hopefully there'll be a baseball season this year. Thank you and, very and, much, Bernie. Yeah. And Ken, if you get a chance to come to Mobile, March 11th, 12th, and 13th, be my guest. I'll keep that in mind. I love fantasy camps and love those ball players. And I you love take... for you to, uh, for on some time or another, we get to break some bread, huh, brother? <laughs> I wouldn't mind that at all, my friend. I wouldn't mind it at all. Like I yeah. said, you guys are some of my heroes. I Thank love you, you so Kim. much, Bernie. Love you, you Kim. Take care buddy. of yourself. Thank you. That sir. will do it. Well, that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. 
That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.